This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... An Appalachian Cryptid Campaign. The Great Freelancer Wall Hitting of 2022. Horror Masterclass Highlights. And Gray Barker. Did you know that both of us, Ken and Robin, have written books and games for Atlas Games? This month, they're featuring products by us on sale. We're so honored. Atlas Games is doing a special for our listeners only. Use coupon code CANONROBIN23, that's spell out A-N-D in Ken and Robin, to save 20% on your games and books at atlas-games.com. Like Robin's action-packed feng shui and conspiracy-drenched over the edge. Or Ken's mini-mythos series of Cthulhu-themed children's books, like Goodnight Azathoth and Clifford the Big Red God. So who writes our banter in these Atlas ads? Our good friend Michelle Nephew. Sometimes I think that power goes to her head a little. Like last month where she had me singing Christmas carols for Weird Little Elf? Yeah, I kind of noticed that. Yeah, this month Atlas Games is running a sale on products that two of us have written for them. But what does that have to do with me repeating, Michelle is a goddess and we bow before her greatness? Her script cues are even worse. I can't stop hitting myself. Ken, just because it's in the script notes doesn't mean you have to actually slap yourself. It's it's audio. It's a podcast. Our listeners can't see you. I don't feel so good. The things we do for our listeners. But at least this month, they're getting 20% off on books and games written by the two of us. Just head over to atlas-games.com for your exclusive discount on feng shui, over the edge, and mini mythos products. Then use the coupon code KenandRobin23 at checkout. Well, the dice are rattling extra hard because we've uh, whittled them ourselves. Uh, we're going to do some uh, gaming out in the porch. And uh, we've got our special uh, hand-carved uh, miniatures as well. And uh, we got a Loretta Lynn live in concert as our gatefold vinyl LP that we've are uh, using as our GM screen. Because uh, this time around, at the behest of beloved Patreon backer Derek Yates, we are going to look into creating an Appalachian-set cryptid slash folk horror campaign and we we're going to get bonus points and i'm looking forward to finding out what we can spend our bonus points on for bringing in matawan and blair mountain and derek adds my grandfathers on both my maternal and paternal sides were strikers in the pittston strike of 1989 and today i'm a prosecutor in one of the counties that those strikers were arrested in admittedly i was seven years old at the time but i still ain't proud of it so, Ken, there seems to be a lot of material to uh, draw together to uh, create a campaign with that premise. And since you're the, the drawer together of materials, you're going to start off by telling us what materials you found. Yeah. Appalachians obviously run from New Hampshire all the way down to Georgia. But if we're bringing in Matwan and Blair Mountain, I think it's most fun if we concentrate on West Virginia, where both of those places are sort of the core of Appalachia as we understand it now, and certainly full of dramatic events going, you know, back to the original pioneer days and all the way down, as Derek points out, to 1989, when we still have the same dynamics going on. So to start with, I'm going to go for our bonus points 
uh, Matt Wan. There's a great John Sayles movie about it, but it was a shootout uh, in May of 1920 between a group of uh, detectives, not Pinkertons, but a lesser agency called the Baldwin Feltz Agency and coal mining strikers or striking coal miners. They were in the city of Matewan or the town of Matewan. The detectives were trying to muscle the union. The union wasn't having it. Gunplay erupted. Satisfyingly, a bunch of the detectives wound up dead. Two of the miners also wound up dead. There were riots then when the government came in and started to prosecute people for gunning down detectives. Then there was a trial in which a jury of West Virginians did what juries of West Virginians often do and said, doesn't look like a guilty verdict to us. And then the Baldwin Feltz detective survivors uh, went and assassinated the union leaders in August of 1921, which is part of the union breaking tension that led to the Battle of Blair Mountain, which was a gigantic multi-thousand guns on both sides battle between the coal company police and their hired thugs and a bunch of striking coal miners, like 10,000 striking coal miners on Blair Mountain in Morgan County, south of Matewan. And this was in August to September of 1921. And if you want more about the Battle of Blair Mountain, we did a whole episode on it, Robin, or a whole segment on it in episode 462. So I would say dive back there for more on it, because uh, as I imply, West Virginia full of stuff. There is a podcast, which is all about basically exactly what Derek is asking, apparently called The Old Gods of Appalachia. It's by Cam Collins and Steve Shell, and they're going to have a game adapted by the good folks at Monty Cook Games. So I assume one could just sort of hang tight and play that, but our listeners are not the types to hang tight, Robin. They're the, no, they they hang on the very edge of, of gaming at all times. Exactly. They they jump ahead. They become. Yes. They're like pioneers, if I may. They're the people who would go into the cricks, hollers, valleys, and uh, round tops of West Virginia and disturb all manner of monsters and witches. There, there's a big sort of a Appalachian vibe in American fantasy that has been washed out. But among the best of it is the Silver John stories by Manly Wade Wellman. They're set in North Carolina. But I would say if you're going to run this kind of a game, reading Silver John is not optional. Go ahead and do that. It will give you, obviously, the the sort of the geography is somewhat different because it's farther south. But the feel is very, very strongly that part of the world. And what drives that feel is not just the old crumbly mountains, uh, which you also get in the Ozarks and the Wachita Mountains in Oklahoma, which is where I encountered this, but the sort of leavening of Scots-Irish settlement with lashings up certainly in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Dutch. So you've got a lot of vibrant local cunning folk and witch lore tradition. And uh, the witches in West Virginia are called the Granny Witches. They resemble sort of the English cunning folk in their role in society. They generally were not prosecuted in West Virginia. This is because in West Virginia, if you had a problem witch, or if you had a problem witch around circa 1830, according to Lucullus McWhorter in the Border Settlers of Northwestern Virginia, you'd call a witch hunter such as Elkany Roby, who would draw the witch in charcoal and then shoot the outline with a silver bullet. 
And if the charcoal outline bled, you know, he'd hit the witch and she'd stop a witch. And, and that was everyone sort of went along with that. And right, so the witch would live, but her magic would be dead. Is that I assume idea? so. Or maybe she'd have a, a bullet wound. Like if you hit a werewolf and then it you know shows up later with an axe wound on it. I'm not exactly sure that the chapter is not as long as I would like. And it is, as far as I can tell, the only source for the storied career of Elkany Roby. So take so that. that gives us plenty of RAM to make. <laughs> things up exactly lots of running room uh the last witch trial in west virginia was in 1802 it was in brook county which is up in the panhandle of west virginia and it was the witch Anne blair suing her accusers for slander for daring to call her a bad witch so west virginia very different uh the witch trials in virginia are more like what we think of as witch trials but they those all happened down by the coast they were all in the tidewater. They weren't up in the hills. It's a whole different situation. And then finally, to tie our witches and our coal miners together, we have the petrified witch of Kanawha County, who supposedly, either while alive or while petrified, stories, as I mentioned, are unclear, used her magic to help striking miners in 1912. And her body, she laid down in her coffin and turned to stone, and people could come and get witch, you know, blessings off of her if they knew how to approach her coffin. And lots of people said, oh, yeah, you go up onto that hill, there's the witch, and she's petrified. It's near Witchy River is the name of the river, by the way. <laughs> yeah, just so you know where to, how to find the coffin. Just so you know where to go. Go up Witchy River, go up the hill, then there's a witch on a hill. Well, she's not there now. Uh, we don't know if the governor was mad that she was helping too many miners and so he had the body taken away we don't know what happened oh, but i hear it. i sense a macguffin there's a macguffin exactly so you have your old witchcraft which is core to folk horror but i i think i would say uh maybe as a caution that the fundamental tension of folk horror is city folk versus the pre-modern well in america our version of city folk versus the pre-modern is a different kind of a story. It's a, you know, one of the uh, captivity narratives or a cowboys and Indians style Western, and it has different valences and a different vibe. So the Shawnee, who are mostly who lived in the uh, West Virginia Hills, the Cherokee a little bit in the South, they may have a different take and you may find yourself moving into sort of you know, Indian burial ground and the Manitou and all the sort of, you know, scary Native American vibe, which may not be what you want to go for. Certainly, the American Indians have plenty of their own legends about monsters and weird stuff, uh, which you can draw on. There's a wonderful frontier Western that's also a folk horror movie called Eyes of Fire that you could maybe watch as a bit of an inspiration. It's also set in that same vague area, although I think it's Kentucky more than West Virginia, but it's still the Shawnee and it's still that uh, sort of a vibe. Right. And it has a good interplay of those three things of the the modern um, American or the 18th century American, the witch and the native beliefs, plus an older monstery type thing that uh, exists below everything. So maybe that's your template. Right. And what I'm sensing here is actually an inversion of folk horror, which is usually the naive city fools go to the country where people remember the ancient ways and are destroyed by them, right? It's the folk horror is very often about urban fear of rural people. Mm -hmm. And this one will have to, presumably the characters will be the rural people 
Uh, and of course, who who would they fear? The city folk coming mm-hmm. to despoil their land. Big city lawyers and detectives and whatnot. Right. Union busters, so forth. And so uh, here we have the, the heroic rules uh, fending off the attempts of the uh, city folk to come and, and destroy their ways. But there's also a forest. Yeah. And right, forests yeah. are scary, especially at night. They're full of all sorts of things. And among those sorts of things would be monsters, would right. be cryptids. Mm-hmm. And so I think that you would get your variety in there of, you know, occasionally, you know, something very ancient will crawl out of the woods. You uh, are afraid of that, just as you're afraid of the city people coming to mess with you. And you've got your tension between uh, your two sorts of things. So we've already uh, recently talked about Mothman. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can have Mothman may very well have uh, flitted back into the uh, into the woods. There's lots of moths in the woods. And I think, can you find some other uh, cryptids who might be uh, lurking in the mountains? Yeah, I think it, uh, when we did our Mothman Festival Roundup, I mentioned this giant book of West Virginia cryptids, which is, you know, you would want to hunt down one of them. There's a lot of them. West Virginia produces more cryptids than it can consume domestically, I think. But it punches above its, its weight in cryptids. Right. Absolutely. Per capita, it's a high cryptid state. A, a really great monster is the Snarly Yowl, which is a kind of a wolf monster. Maybe it's a werewolf. Maybe it's a demon. Maybe it's a manitou. But all we know about it is the Pennsylvania Dutch didn't like it. And they thought it had fangs and it, you know, it snarls at you, hence the name Snarly Yow. So it's a, it's sort of a, a good forest bad monster to sort of just keep uh, throwing. It could be sort of the, you know, the devil or the, um, the, the big bad of your campaign that's, right. it's unkillable. Because if it's and a lycanthrope, that's useful because it can also, in its human form, be prowling around the town and interacting with you and stuff mm-hmm. and having uh, an agenda because you don't normally think of, you know, Sasquatches as having an agenda other than, you know, don't run into people that often. Mm-hmm. And of course there, there are Sasquatches, right? Yes. Um, I would say that the, um, uh, the snarly owl could be sort of the, the founder of a bloodline. And then you get your old creepy family, which is, of course another big part of, uh, Appalachian lore and also, uh, good stories. Uh, the Sasquatches include the Grafton monster, which is basically probably a Sasquatch. Uh, there are versions of the Grafton monster that are headless, which is good fun. A headless Sasquatch. They have a sheep squatch, which is a either a Sasquatch covered in white wool or a big, like giant bear-sized sheep, also known as the white thing, which might be a different thing than sheep squatch. So you've got sort of a of a, a formless. I don't say shoggoth, Robin, but shagathy vibe with this sort sort of of mutant creature with wall Mm -hmm, we can uh, certainly monster that uh image up a bunch so that uh, because the you know sheep sheep squatch is just funny Mm -hmm. you want to have the players laugh oh ho ho sheep squatch and then this horrible hideous multi-limbed thing with matted white fur comes boiling out of the woods at them and and they uh they regret their japery. Yeah. One of the, one of the, I think, common features, both of, I mean, all over the Appalachians, in te- big in Tennessee, is that a lot of the folklore, a lot of the cryptids, very much read like mountain folk pulling the legs of eager young grad students. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
all of them could be pulled back and say, well, there's a seed of a real monster, a real lore thing in here. But also, if a monster sounds silly, it might actually still be genuine lore because the lore is made to sound silly a lot of times. And a lot of it is the same way that Victorians domesticated fairies. You domesticate the story and you tell fun stories about the Behinder, which is the monster that is always behind you and you can never turn around and see it. And that's sort of a one note gag, but you could make that scary. I think relatively easily there's, right. and, um, and you can cute them up to uh, as a tourist attraction or mm-hmm. for, you know, to have a mascot for your high school sports team or, exactly. or what have you. And so you could have the, the veneer of goofiness and then discover the horror that even the local people have forgotten underlying that yeah. sort of cutesy image, which is another great folk horror vibe is that there's these things that are reminiscent of ancient paganism, but we've forgotten them or domesticated them. But really there is a darker underlying truth beneath it. You know, the, the old Hobbs lane from Quatermass in the pit is a, another great example that, you know, it's named that, but it's actually, it's where the devil fell back in the day. Right. So uh, you've also got a, a river monster. Uh, I do. River monsters are kind of tough to fit into scenarios and make, and make them the big bad, but you can always have them come out of the water and, you know, grab the bad guy and take them underneath at the climax of your adventure. So what what river monster are we looking at here? The river monster is Agua, and this is a river monster that the Shawnee and the Cherokee had. But again, people, fun ruiners, say maybe they said there was a river monster to scare the white folks away from settling by the river. There may not have been a real river monster, but again, people have seen the river monster. Agua sort of is a giant long-tailed turtle, but also maybe a sea serpenty thing. Difficult to say. There's another river monster in the Monongahela besides Agua called Monongi. Now, are they a mated pair? Are they the same names of the things? Are they bitter rivals for the Monongahela and you must serve one? That I guess that's up to you. There's another alien to go with Mothman. There's the Flatwoods monster, which showed up in 1952 in a classic flap. It looks not unlike a great race of Yith if you look at the drawings of it. So if you're thinking, hmm, I'd like a little Lovecraft in my Appalachian folk horror campaign, I think the Flatwoods monster makes it good. And uh, spoiler, the Flatwoods monster will be cropping up again later in this uh, very episode. He will return. And again, if you have the, the, the great race of Yith, that lets you do time folds and time slips and you can bring monsters from out of the past or out of the future. So if you're running a 1920s game, say focusing on the, the tensions leading up to the battle of Blair mountain and your heroic rural figures are, are opposing the hated Baldwin Feltz detectives uh, from the big city, the flatwoods monster can still, you know, seep back in time because of his Yithian that seems perfectly normal. So you can still have it in your 1920s campaign if that's what you're feeling like doing. And most terrifying of all, uh, you've got the Vegetable Man of Rivesville, which I gather uh, makes you eat your broccoli. Is that what's happening? I I think he is. uh, uh, He may be madder at you if you eat your broccoli because I believe he's a plant creature like Swamp Thing. uh, Oh, he's a triffid. Yeah, he he shows up and he um, uh, messes with you. Uh, He could be a triffid. He could be a a Swamp Thing uh, or a Man Thing, depending. Any of your things. He could be a leaf elemental or a, or an egregore that is the spirit of the forest. I think that he makes a an interesting shift from the old, you know, Hearn the Hunter, horned man type guy. And, you know, just to drop it in here, Hearn the Hunter is English, so maybe don't drag him into the Scots-Irish. Uh, they have their own dudes to run around, so 
you know, live a little. That's all I'm saying. Do some research. And so our player characters are presumably local problem solvers mm-hmm. who uh, sort of on an informal basis deal with the the odd things that happen. So uh, it might be, you know, one of the sheriff's deputies is attuned to the woods. Uh, there might be another character who, uh, you know, possibly started out uh, messing around with the new age and then found the real witchcraft underneath it all. And then just your round that out with a mix of different types of people with different specialties as you do with any uh, player character group. But their goal is to uh, protect the people in the villages, both from the creatures in the woods and from the uh, interlopers from out of town. And uh, as we've already suggested, the body of the petrified witch seems like the big MacGuffin that everybody's trying to get, right? That It mm. went missing when the governor stole it. And where did it go? The sorcerers from out of town are coming to to, uh, to take it. The anti-sorcerers uh, want to destroy it. Uh, you need it to, uh, you don't know exactly where it is. It's magic is uh, diffuse. It would be even uh, greater and the people would be more protected if you could find it and guard it and you know, know where it is, but at least it still seems like it's somewhere around and you want to make sure that all of the various forces trying to uh, get the petrified witch do not succeed in doing so. Yeah. I, th- I think it'd be fun if you're setting it as in the present day to do flashbacks to your characters, you know, great grand folks in the twenties during the, the, the big uh, ructions then, or going all the way back to frontier times, you could sort of, play your whole lineage and you're like, we're going to go find the petrified witch. That's our campaign. Well, let's go back and play our, our great grandparents in the 1920s and see how they interacted with the petrified witch. And then that can be, we find the diary of our great grandma and she gives us the clue that we need in the modern day. And you played out the generation of that clue really. And I think that'd be a fun vibe, a different way of, of running a game. And I think it would also really work well with how Appalachian culture feels because it is so much oral tradition passed down mother to daughter and father to son. It's not about, you know, stuff that's, that's written down and footnoted. It's a living body of lore or it was a living body of lore, I guess, until the nineties when everything was ruined, but uh, is a living body of lore in living memory of your characters. And I think that, that would make it different from a sort of bog standard uh, game where you're, oh, well, we're investigators of the occult. Where are we? Uh, Massachusetts. We're investigators of the occult. Where are we? Yorkshire. You know, it's the same the same recipe everywhere you are. I think in Appalachia, you can maybe allow yourself to do a little generational role playing and have things that happen in the past echo down into the present. And even, you know, thanks to the Flatwoods monster and a possible Yithian vortex, you can actually change the present by doing things in the past if you master that specific Flatwoods magic. Right. And even if you don't do that, there's got to be ghosts, right? The assassinated right, yeah. union leaders, the private cops, the Baldwin Feltz detectives, they presumably are still around as ghosts, but mm-hmm. your uh, grandparents could uh, interact with them when they were alive. And yeah. uh, you can perhaps have a cross current that allows you to uh, sort of, if not uh, set the ghost to rest, at least to uh, make a bargain with them. And by the time we are bargaining with ghosts, I think it's time to uh, head on out of this segment before, you know, any spectral contracts are signed and see what's waiting for us on the other side of this commercial.
The skies above New Olympus are patrolled by caped crusaders, but these superior beings are far from heroes. They wield their powers with reckless disregard, serving the interests of corporate overseers and silencing those who oppose their will. You are Clara Keenig, investigative journalist for the pedestrian newspaper. You intend to prove that the privileged superhuman elite do not yet hold a monopoly on justice. Welcome to Alter Egomania, the newest setting for the Gumshoe 1 to 1 system. Featuring a quick start rules guide, printable problem and edge cards, and a starter adventure. Alter Egomania contains everything you need to run a one player, one GM game set in a universe of corrupt superheroes. Exclusively available in PDF. The exciting format unaffected by global paper shortages. They can't get stuck in customs. That's waiting for you right now. At the Pelgrane Press web store. Or drive through RPG. The Bing of Adobe software renewing, the clatter of small change on the table, and the thump of hardbacks in your garage welcome us once more into that most optimistic of huts, the business of gaming. And uh, Robin, today we're talking about, uh, I think this is sort of, you know, they, they talk about... Uh, this is a sort of long pandemic, I guess, in a way. The, the, the slow process of getting things back to coming soon, right? Right. Because, uh, what I want to talk about is the, the great freelancer or creator wall hitting of 2022. Uh, because I have found, uh, and, uh, not to get into details, but this has been true for me as well. I've had a bit of an anus horribilis, but also many of the people I'm collaborating with or, want to collaborate with and want to hire. And this is sort of true across the board from talking to other people who are trying to find uh, collaborators to work on stuff is people have just are running on fumes now. And this is uh, in the business of gaming segment, because this is yet another explanation of why it is that the books that you're waiting for are taking even longer than they did before the pandemic, because at any stage in the production of any product, if one person who is committed to do a task is radically late, or even worse, has to drop out for perfectly good reasons, but then isn't available to do the chunk of work that they were supposed to do, whether that was design or uh, writing or layout or illustration, to all the ducks that have to be put in a row to, to get a book together, having someone be late or drop out and then have to be replaced by another person who might themselves then drop out is really slowing down uh, the production of everything at this point. And I think what happened was that initially, when the pandemic first started, there was a big rush of energy where everyone thought, uh-oh, gaming's in trouble, we got to rescue it, we got to take it online, we have to have equivalents of conventions and panels for people to experience. And we had a really great uptick in interest in gaming. Sales of game books went up a lot during the uh, first uh, chunk of the pandemic. But now we're sort of on the downswing of that and all the extra energy that people poured into continuing to work and continuing to put that energy that, you know, those themselves and their work out into the world. Uh, I think we've now hit a place where people are paying the price for that in a belated way. Ironically, now that the world is opening up again, a lot of people are just too wiped out to go out into it and certainly too wiped out to, you know, 
complete all of their work on deadline. Yeah, I think that there's been sort of a, I mean, you can, you hear about the uh, difficulty that, you know, straight companies have hiring people, even as unemployment is staying, you know, a little bit higher than anyone would like. You've got, uh, I think there's sort of a, a societal or civilizational disconnect at trying to re-engage after 18 months where we were all, you know, parked in our garages, inhaling our own carbon monoxide. And it's not as easy as, you know, turning a switch. And I don't believe that anyone who actually thought about it for two seconds thought it would be, but you know, with a just in time economy, everyone is, you know, wants it to be that way. And I believe that writers and artists and people like us, I don't know if we're flakier than normal people on average, but many of us are flaky and a, a big stressor like that has a, you know, comparatively big uh, or resultantly big impact. And it knocks people out of their groove. It takes a while to get back into it. I know that my productivity for a variety of reasons has suffered even in 2022 when everything is basically open and uh, free to wander around in. Uh, it's taken me a long time to sort of get my my life and my productivity back onto even the trajectory that it was in in, you know, 2019, much less what it was, you know, a few years back when I was uh, burning the midnight oil at both ends to make vampire happen. Yeah, because I think what, what uh, we look at as flakiness sometimes is. It's sometimes they're just people who are unreliable and they're, you know, they're uh, even at the best of times, they're not going to come through for you or deliver the work that you wanted or their uh, ambitions exceed their uh, discipline. I'm glad also that you pointed out that this is not just a thing that's affecting uh, creative people, but is all across the economy and the spectrum. But in particular, with creative work, you need to be fully on in order to do it. You need to be 100% engaged. It's not something that you can kind of do by rote. And it requires uh, sort of emotional energy and emotional strength and focus. And if there's anything that bashed people's focus over the last few years, it's the pandemic and then the recovery from it. And I think what a lot of people did is we essentially borrowed our energy from the future. So that mm -hmm. in 2020, I you know, w was trying to deal with the stress by working harder. Because while I was working, that was a time when... I was focused on something I could control and something that I was good at and something that was not affected. The production of, you know, writing or game writing uh, on the surface is not affected by uh, the pandemic. I didn't have to go out into the world and, you know, dig up words uh, in places where, uh, you know, I'd be at risk of infection. Mm -hmm. But what I and I think a lot of other people were doing was borrowing energy from the future and we were also borrowing sales from the future because I pointed out earlier that sales went up early on the pandemic. Well, now sales have gone down a bit because mm -hmm. people bought a ton of stuff and they haven't finished reading it yet. And uh, they may be getting their groups back together and, uh, you know, the things that they've read, they're going to, you know, actually use in play. But essentially, you know, that is kind of evened out. And uh, when you combine the lower sales with the lower ability to put out new product, I think that's going to put a strain on a, a lot of small presses. Yeah. The, um, I talked about the just in time economy and of course making a game with that's anything more than one designer alone in a garret. And uh, for example, plenty of authors have just kept on keeping on 
throughout because they're machine people and to be reverenced. Kevin Crawford, for example, has just kept banging them out. I assume Matt Forbeck has, has never slacked a, an instant, but plenty of other authors that are not solo production houses, you're dependent on somebody else. And in a time where there's lots of people doing lots of things, maybe you can turn to someone and say, oh man, I, I know that it's tight, but we need 10,000 words at the last minute to fill this spot. And if someone's on top of things and they've beaten all their deadlines and they've got spare time, they say, sure, we'll do that. But if they're also either scrambling to make up for someone else on another project or they themselves are scrambling to make up for uh, circumstances that have slowed them down, you can't do that. So the amount of, you know, not to uh, go back to the old supply chain rigmarole, but it kind of is the supply chain again. It's just that it's the supply chain of entirely fictive things that in theory shouldn't be affected by it, but it still is. There's still, someone's got to lay it out. Someone's got to, you know, write the rule set. Someone's got to write the adventure. Mental and creative energy is finite. Yeah. And uh, finite for each person. And another thing that has been impacting people is health. Because first of all, uh, I know a bunch of people who have long COVID symptoms. And if you were to set out a series of symptoms that would make it harder to buckle down and do creative work, it would be long COVID. And the flu has managed to go off. And the flu really was biding its time during the pandemic. We've got it's, a particularly nasty one at this it's, point. It's as though it were evolutionarily outcompeted for the uh, ecosystem that is your lungs. Right. Well, <laughs> it, it's, it, was, it went off and did some woodshedding and it's mm. come back and forth. So I know that that has affected people. And I think before COVID, we weren't quite cognizant of just how long-term damaging a really bad flu bout can be to, mm-hmm. the, to the body. And so we're seeing that as well. So, And then also, I, I, I would assume that even if you don't wind up with full-blown clinical depression, you wind up with symptoms not unlike depression as a result of the lockdown and as a result of dealing with health crises and as a result of the last 18 months, so it may take some time for people to come out of that fog. It's, you know, what what's a big, big, big symptom of depression is you sleep 16 hours a day. Well, that was the eight hours you were going to spend writing, I guess, in, in right. many cases. And when you do wake up, you're not necessarily clear eyed. No, you are, you are not uh, vim-vimity ready to, to, to buckle down and write. And obviously, people who've been dealing with it for years have hopefully worked out sort of systems and backstops. But those of us who sort of went through life as one sunny day after another and an endless series of uh, darling Disney animals, we ran into a entirely unaccustomed black dog. And it's taking a bit of, of restructuring to figure out, is this permanent? Is this, I mean, how many more bars do I go to before I feel like it's 2019 again? And again, going to bars as it transpires, Robin. There's other things in bars that can also uh, decrease your productivity, I've heard. But no one was more shocked than me to find that out, is what I'm trying to say. So, yeah, it's, I mean, even over and above the the symptoms of, of the disease or the other diseases that are, as always, with us in winter, you've got the symptoms of the Again, the big social implosion that uh, that was uh, lockdown and, and post-COVID uh, and pre-vaccine era. So you've got a, a lot of other stuff that's knock-on effects. It's not even necessary, you know, someone, you know, never even got COVID, but they're still, 
you know, suffering from emotional knock on from everyone around them getting COVID or from everyone around them shutting down all the art museums and they had to sit home and, and, um, uh, watch Netflix and, you know, basically, you know, drink poison for 18 months instead of get out there and have real lives. And also it was a big force multiplier for any other bad thing that happens in anyone's life. Yeah. Right. Cause it makes it worse. And of course everybody has tough things happen to them. Uh, you're lucky if you have a two and a half year period where nothing bad happens to you. But if it does, everything is already so much worse. You're going into it running on fumes. Mm-hmm. And uh, that also uh, makes things difficult. Now, normally, I try to have some good advice for people. <laughs> yeah. But I myself, I'm finding it difficult to... I keep telling myself, I need to stop. I need to take time off. But if your time off doesn't feel like time off, if it doesn't feel healing, you know, I haven't had a proper relaxing vacation since the pandemic. And, you know, I tell myself, well, well, maybe this, this holiday vacation, which I am about to have. And Mm -hmm. by the time you're hearing this has already occurred. So let's hope I I nailed it. You know, there, uh, there are always, you know, things to do and stuff to think about, uh, as a creative person, stuff is coming your way uh, with action items in a way that it it wouldn't have been, uh, back in, you know, uh, the, the, era of the pulp writers or uh, any other previous era of, uh, of creators. And uh, it's hard to slow down and it's hard to feel like you've uh, recovered. So I guess basically without yet having taken my own advice, <laughs> I guess the thing to do is, is to, you know, everybody give themselves permission to, even though you feel you've completely slowed down and you're kind of uh, walking in wet concrete shoes to actually stop long enough to to rest rather than trying to bang out you know one more action item a day and we all need to forgive ourselves some temporary lapses in efficiency in order to create a greater productivity down the line and if you are a life of the mind person definitely pay attention to the you know the corpore sano half of that equation uh, take vitamin d use a, a ultraviolet lamp if you need to uh, especially in the winter, get exercise, go, f- go for walks, you know, do other stuff, not necessarily walk to bars, but bars often are at the end of a walk, you know, do things that engage the other part of you and ideally do give that, you know, creating brain time where you're physically not, you know, at the desk, you can't answer that email. You have to do your walk. You have to, you know, go down to the uh, lake shore or watch ducks or something like that. Don't, you know, get uh, inside your own head and stay on the computer for 21 hours a day, because then you really will make yourself sick again. Well, uh, that's as close to advice as we can come up with. Yeah. And on that note, I think it's time to, to bathe in the healing, rejuvenating rays of a beautiful audio commercial. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled 
F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astvageln on drive through Keep the mountain cryptids from hexing this podcast by joining such Woodwise backers as Drew Eichels, John W.S. Marvin, John Bisco, Scott Jones, and Darren Dumay. Speaking of things that are starting up again after a long hiatus, it's time for Ken and Robin Recycle Audio. And in this case, uh, for the next three episodes, we're going to be taking segments from the uh, Horror Role-Playing Masterclass that uh, Ken and I, uh, along with uh, Gareth Ryder Hanrahan, uh, did at Dragon Meet. These were very great Masterclass-style questions that were posed to us and aren't just the typical uh, questions that you would always expect, but or were coming from interesting angles. So we think uh, you'll enjoy these uh, nice, uh, juicy uh, highlights. So let's, through the power of audio, go back in time to uh, early December in good old London. We're going to kick this off. Each of us is going to provide a, a tip for horror GMs. And I'm going to, because I didn't tell either of my colleagues that I was going to do this. I ha- I'm going to give them time to think by giving them the first one. So the first tip that I would give you while running or designing, a, whether you're improvising a horror scenario or uh, uh, designing one for other people to play, is make sure that early on in the action there are sources of secondary horror that are just little creepy things at the side, little details, so that it's not just one big bad doing the thing, but the big bad is creating a circumstance that brings into existence other effects that the player characters can interact with earlier in the course of the scenario because you want something that the players will seize on as a thing that they find way creepier than you expected. Because the best horror moments that I've had with my group have been ones where a little throwaway detail, just some something that was just sort of be odd at the margins was something that terrified them and they kept talking about it, and therefore I made it a bigger deal and had callbacks to it uh, in one case in just one scenario and in another case uh, throughout the course of the long Yellow King campaign that I was running. And so there was a detail of there were foxes screaming out outside of this fortress that the characters were hunkered down in. Well, they found foxes really terrifying, especially when we went to YouTube and played what foxes sound like. Uh, so that became a big motif. Again, later on, I had, oh, yeah, the, the main problem is down in the mine, but secondarily, there are these uh, sort of dogs with kind of quasi-human faces that kind of roam around this small community uh, and are attracted to uh, investigators. And again, they found this way scarier than I had anticipated, and that became almost more memorable to them than what was down in the mine. So my tip is secondary sources of horror that can sometimes become more memorable than your big bad. Gar? Um, what about role-playing games specifically, um, this will work for every horror game, but it works for a lot of them, is take advantage of, sort of the subjective nature of the game. Like In a movie, 
what's on the screen is on the screen. You can do like your know, jump cuts or flashes and stuff, but you like somebody like you know, scroll back and see exactly what happened. With a novel, you've got the words, you may have an unreliable narrator or something, but the text is set. With a role-playing game, everything comes to the GM, to the players, and it goes to the GM to an individual player. So you can take like one player aside and say, you know, hey, you know something about the painting on the wall, the eyes are watching you. You don't reach that to the other, to the other players. Now you're set the situation where that player doesn't know are they perceiving something that's true in the game world but no one else has picked up on? Are, are they excited going insane? To the players, it comes exactly because of secret information being passed to that one player. You're sowing mistrust, you're sowing paranoia. Basically, because everything's mediated to the GM, to the players, you can play a lot with uh, levels of perception and like, knowledge and just take advantage of the fact that it's a role-playing game, which is a, an odd way of telling a story. I would make my sort of zeroth law of horror gaming, which is that unlike almost any other kind of gaming, horror games break if not everyone at the table wants to play horror. Because horror depends on a shared emotion. Even if you, the player, are not as terrified of the uh, dogs with human faces or the you know tentacle monster or whatever... <coughs> You have to be able to suspend that ironic distance and engage with the belief that your character is potentially terrified by what's happening. You have to be emotionally open to it in a way that you don't have to. You don't have to have any personal feelings one or the other about orcs to enjoy a D and D combat. You can enjoy it tactically. You can enjoy it, you know, on a character level. You can enjoy it all over the map. But in a horror game, the entire payoff is that emotional connection. That tap into the sensation of unease, or ideally even, an actual frisson of terror, like when you play the YouTube sound of foxes screaming. And without everyone at the table being willing to do that, you won't get there. Because one person checked out and looking at their phone, or checked out and uh, making jokes about it in lieu of connecting, is deadly to atmosphere and horror depends for its effect on that atmosphere so unlike virtually any other game that you run you really have to get player buy-in which you should be doing anyway with something that you know skirts up the edge of you know potential trauma or whatever you should be getting buy-in from your players anyway but with horror you have to do it or it won't work so just the well we got some time let's do vampires is not necessarily going to actually produce what you want it to produce unless everyone has bought in and said, yes, I'm ready, I'm willing to experience this. So at this point, we're going to open it up to questions. We have, in a stunning technological advance, we have a microphone for questioners. So put up your hand and we'll pass it back. Oh, very convenient to have someone up, up at the front. And we'll just pass the microphone around from question to question. Hi. So you, you mentioned uh, jokes, right? And it does come up uh, a few times. And I think, to your point, it's important to get that agreement in advance that you really want to immerse yourself in, in the horror. I find that sometimes a bit of comic relief can, can bring a bit of uh, almost like contrast to the horror, and finding the right time to do it could be beneficial. But how do you manage that as a DM? Uh, yeah, so first of all, I agree that's absolutely correct, that uh, the sign of a truly scary scenario is the players are joking in order to uh, break the tension. Um, and the trick as GM is just to uh, cut it off at the point 
where you've already had the relief, and then when uh, the usual temptation at jokes at a role-playing table is then everybody just riffs on that joke for a while, and you want to cut it off before the riffing starts. Have the laugh, and then you know just say, excuse me, we need to move on because the uh, dogs with human faces are back. One thing is, if you can have the, the characters making the jokes as opposed to the players... That won't work in every setting, but in a lot of modern-day horror games, like Laundry, for example, you have the characters like cracking jokes about the horror as a like, nervous relief for them, and that basically keeps the horror like meaningful in the game, but still lets the players make jokes. I would like your, sorry, I would like your advice um, to how to bring into the atmosphere of a horror game a player who is invested in having fun but can't possibly from a more tactically oriented game. Uh, so. When uh, they see the shadow on the wall pointing the torch, your classical horror player will be horrified. The tactical player will think, well, what, I have a gun, I have a spell, or whatnot. And you want to get them a bit away from that kind of D&D kind of uh, combat, uh, let's get to that mentality and into horror. Uh, have you had this? Like, uh, bringing players from other genres and trying to get them involved in, in the horror genres? I mean, the, the sort of the mean but effective answer is kill their first character. <laughs> that is how way back in 1981 we all learned to play Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> that may not work at all tables and it may not work with all players and it may not be necessary with all players, but a tactically minded player can contribute to a horror game, obviously, but they need to be open or opened to the rest of the fun. And that can be, you know, I pull my gun, it's a ghost. Bullets don't work on ghosts. And then the fun that they may have is, how do I kill a ghost? And then they have to immerse themselves in the world of the horror to find out how to get back to being the tactical badass that they actually want to be. And if you provide a trail of breadcrumbs through the promise of I can finally hit a ghost, and it leads through dogs with human faces or, you know, uh, singing a hideous nursery rhyme with a spectral child or whatever it is, then hopefully as they see, oh, there's more kinds of fun at this table, they will begin to seek that out or, or at least be open to it, even if in their heart of hearts they really just want to shoot a ghost. <laughs> Okay, thank you very much for this. Um, so, here's a, uh, sorry, that reminded me, Paranoia is another very good game in which if you kill them quickly, they say, oh, it's okay to die. It's what I did. A friend of mine owns a D&D player. So oh, I see, that's the game. And then he got it from that point on, which is killing them fairly. So my question is this. I'm, I'm currently GMing uh, Alien RPG, which I'm loving a great deal. There's the questions of cinematics and dramatic irony. So these are the two points. There are cut scenes. There are scenes that are happening between other players. There are scenes, and because they have all the genders and they all are betraying each other, they want to have conversations. Now, if those conversations are off, off somewhere where the others can't hear them, that's great for mystery, but that's terrible for the cinematic experience. And I haven't really worked it out yet. So it's just generally your advice on how you successfully manage to, you know, do like have cutscenes, allow them to see things they wouldn't normally see, but without it sort of getting in the way of the genuine mystery, which can contribute to the horror, but you want to have the experience. All, all that stuff. So my rule is that uh, interaction between players is never mysterious to other players at the table. That there are times when you become the spectator and you have to observe the 
difference between player knowledge and character knowledge. Uh, you mentioned irony. There can be a delightful irony in that as players try to find ways to justify their characters knowing what they know as players, and that can be fun and you can lean into that. But the mystery is actually, even though we create mystery games, is never as effective as suspense. And suspense is knowing that something bad is going to happen and moving toward that event. Uh, mystery is just surprise. That just works for an instant. But suspense goes on for a long, long time. And so if you can use that fact that two characters are talking about something that this other character isn't supposed to know, and that thing is horrible, and it really matters to this other person, that creates considerable anxiety and suspense in a couple directions at the table. One of those is what happens when I discover that, and, and the next one is when am I and how am I going to discover that? So I would say lean into that dynamic and the whole point is to that the other players are never going to enjoy something they didn't get to hear. So with small differences, while I will sometimes send like a couple of lines of separate you know, information to one player with the idea that that is a reveal that will happen later and the payoff happens in play but play should always be visible in my view to everybody who's at the table I'll disagree with that and say that I, I really love running mystery games where there's some knowledge to the players but the trick there is if you want to like lean into that which I wouldn't always recommend but if you, we do just minimise the amount of time that you're dealing with separate players and if you can give the other person to do like in Alien if you like, if you have any conference with players A and B Give players C and D like a handout, like oh, you like yo, you guys download this file about this like your abandoned base we're on. You guys read that while we're off talking to the players. Because you avoid dead time for players as much as possible. So something I found is I was running uh, like a vampire background game where we had like a really spooky asylum kind of thing where people were having to go into it. And it was really good in terms of the atmosphere, and I was I actually one of the jump players jumped when someone actually like hit like knocked over a table. Uh, in another room and stuff like that and I was like yeah this is really working and then when it came to actually including mechanics that kind of lost a lot of the atmosphere like how do you kind of especially in games that are slightly more like mechanically dense or mechanically crunchy how do you kind of gracefully move from like a very atmospheric kind of descriptive (coughs) situation to a more mechanical one where they can use their abilities so, Ken, uh, the vampire mechanics are now largely your fault. So. <laughs> yes. well, she mentioned Requiem, which I don't have to take credit or blame for. But yes, there are lots of mechanically dense, as you say, uh, horror games out there. And fundamentally, if this is true for any game that involves immersion or emotional connection. You have to get good enough at the game that you don't notice that the rules are coming into play. And if the rules are either very, very sticky, as in speaking of things that are my fault, there are players who I've never figured out. I'm on year three of a Fall of Delta Green game. There are players in my game who still don't know how the magic works, mechanically. And at that, you just take the information, apply the rules in your head, and spit out a result. You become the black box. And the goal is always put the fear, put the tension, put the uncanniness onto the screen... And if they don't trust you to resolve things, then why are you the GM? So your ideal situation is everyone knows all the mechanics intuitively. Your second ideal situation is you, the GM, know the mechanics intuitively, and they trust you to apply them. And that is something that I think can be realistically aimed for, unless you're playing, you know, Phoenix Command as a horror <laughs> game, in which case that is your fault, and I'm not going <laughs> to... 
lean into that. Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality. From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or in glistening hardback. It's time to step into that most mysterious, that most ill-defined of huts. The hut where the paranormal meets the crackpot, a little bit of conspiracy, arguably the corner of the Leptini hut is a conspiracy. Oh, but oh, we're, we're just getting confused and turned around again. But there, looking at the window, there's the alien big cat screaming on the moor to tell us we're in the Leptini hut. And once again, the gray alien and the Nordic alien are perched forward in their chairs because uh, we're uh, again going to enter the realm of ufology, uh, which they find uh, very interesting and or hilarious. And someone that I think they both find both interesting and hilarious is someone we uh, referenced briefly in the Mothman segment, and I thought we should get back to him. And that's Gray Barker, uh, who is sort of a, I don't know whether he's a gadfly or a jester or a, a muckster, but he was certainly someone who had a, a long uh, career and uh, was a promulgator of perhaps one of the few true myths that really took hold and became something that people believed in of the 20th century. So, Ken, uh, tell us about this tall, bespectacled, sort of bookish-looking, dare one say, you know, even a little nerdy-looking man who uh, cast a a long shadow over ufology. Well, he's uh, born in 1925 in Riffle, West Virginia. So, we have our West Virginia connection already. And indeed, his baptism of fire or of fun was investigating the Flatwoods monster encounter. Most of the uh, encounterers were kids, 10 and 11 and 12. And he, at this time, is not even 20. He's a teenager. So, he's able to talk to them and get Lots of juicy details, and being Gray Barker, probably made up a few juicy details, wrote in his write-up of the Flatwoods Monster to Fate magazine, and parlayed that into a column for Space Review, uh, which was a UFO magazine published by a guy named Albert K. Bender. He was the founder of the International Flying Saucer Bureau. And you might think, this is great. Area teenager finds outlet weird UFO guy, everything's fine. But in 1953, in the fall of 1953, just as Barker is getting his feet under him, Bender shuts down the magazine and IFSB by orders from a higher source. Dun, dun, dun. And Barker says, what's this about? Talks to Bender. Bender, it seems, has faced some pressure from mysterious figures 
Barker's very excited about this. He founds his own zine to replace Space Review, The Saucerian, that begins in 1953, takes his column, moves it to Flying Saucers Magazine, which is published by the uh, great legendary Ray Palmer, creator of the Shaver Mystery and a figure of delight in his own right. And then he writes about the Bender case, the book They Knew Too Much about flying saucers in 1956, and he ties Bender's case into another, a number of other cases. The Maury Island hoax had a similar encounter, and the encounter we're discussing is the encounter with the men in black, the three dark-suited men driving a, a Chevrolet or a Cadillac. Uh, they show up, and they tell you to stop talking, and they may be from the government, or they may be aliens, they may be tulpas, but either way, Gray Barker concretizes, does not quite originate, but he absolutely nails down the shape of the Men in Black meme, or uh, lore, or tulpa, or whatever you want to call it. They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers is published by a relatively big player in the game, uh, University Books, which published our buddy Montague Summers, who we discussed earlier, and lots of other occult and communist texts basically the same thing in 1956. By this time, he's got a day job. He's doing film booking for drive-ins and for theaters in Clarksburg, West Virginia. That basically stays one of his big income streams. By the 70s, he's promoting and distributing horror, B-horror for drive-ins and pornography, porno films. So he's got fingers in more than one fringe, I guess is what we are learning. Right, because uh, it's not a lucrative profession, being a ufologist. It is not. You, you need some side gigs. He does the best that he can. In 1959, the success of They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers leads him to found Saucerian books and uh, print lots of sort of seminal contactee narratives. Uh, also becomes a dealer and distributor of other fringe UFO and New Age books, so he sends out his catalog. Engages in a kayfabe war of letters with the uh, seemingly skeptical ufologist James W. Mosley. So Barker would publish some big contactee story, and Mosley would tear it to pieces and say it's nonsense. And then Barker would say, you're a shill for the Air Force. You're in the league with the men in black. How dare you say that? And Mosley would say, you don't know the first thing about science, you goof. And they would do a, a sort of a running, you know, feuding bit. And, of course, they were good friends and wrote back and forth privately to each other and said, I'm going to do this. You go ahead and say this and sort of rehearse their squabble. So that was one of the many ways that he sort of kept controversy up, kept interest in Flying Saucers up. He writes a sequel with Albert Bender, uh, Flying Saucers and the Three Men, in 1962. This is right about the time that he is arrested for contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Barker was gay. He makes sort of reference to it in his correspondence with Mosley and occasionally would even talk about contactee experiences. And he means, you know, cruising in Clarksburg or Charleston, not, you know, meeting aliens. So he had sort of a uh, complex psychological connection to all kinds of things that in 1960 were sort of uh, off the radar of polite society. He possibly as a result of this case, possibly as a result of being over-optimistic about the sales of contact ebooks, declares bankruptcy in 1963, switches after that to a much cheaper model in which he sort of uh, buys an offset press, prints them himself, binds them barely in cardboard, and uh, then sort of leans into it, makes a virtue from necessity, and he writes to his people and he says, I found that real publishers won't touch 
the kinds of narratives that we want to hear about, that they're not economical, that only a dedicated few are interested. So I'm going to publish them as cheaply as possible and pass the savings on to you, my subscribers, because he starts a subscription model. So a lot of the Barker books after 1963 are sold as subscription to his mailing list. By 1977, he's got 4,400 subscribers, which I assume is pretty good number. Right. And so the jankiness of the production values just reinforces yeah. the notion that this is the true truth that, that they, whether they are the men in black or the Air Force, if that's not the same thing, don't want you to have. That exactly. Fringe yeah. literature with fringe production values. And that becomes part of the selling point. The sort of the pride is I'm reading something that you can't get in a bookstore. I'm reading something that you would not understand and you would not buy. Right. So that's a detail that you should steal for your fictional UFO uh, expert is that he has his own offset printing press and he smells like ink. Exactly. I actually have a couple of very late uh, Saucerian books and they're uh, by then they're velo bound with uh, like comb binding or they're pressed together like you did it in a a slightly good office print shop. They're very, very janky, and I'm very, very happy with them. In the 1966, he, of course, investigates Mothman with John Keel, as we mentioned, parts company with him. Because he was running a hoax, and Keel didn't want to deal with that. Yeah, he, he published the first book on the Mothman called The Silver Bridge in 1970, and later on he says about half of it is a recounting of actual sightings and events, I think the true accounts are told in an exciting way, but I've deliberately stuck in fictional chapters based roughly on cases I'd heard about. (laughs) I've deliberately lied. I've deliberately lied. And Keel would not put up with that, at least at the time. But Keel, I think, reads The Silver Bridge and says, that's the sort of atmosphere that I want to do in Mothman Prophecies. And he captures it in 1975 when he writes his uh, much better book. Gray Barker is the man that published the bootleg Vero edition of Jessup's Case for the UFO. This is the multiply annotated copy of Case for the UFO that fell into the hands of the Office of Naval Research, got printed by Vero Press for the use of Project Blue Book and other uh, military uh, studies of UFOs. It became a legend in the community. It was the basis for the Dracula dossier, as it happens, because I have the Vero edition of the case for the UFO, possibly in a in, in a Barker print. I'm not exactly sure, but he, you know, drives therefore the Philadelphia experiment into the the alpha adopters of ufology uh, become suddenly aware of the Philadelphia experiment thanks to him doing the Vero edition. Um, he is still doing hoaxes. He fakes a letter to contactee George Adamski, uh, allegedly from a State Department official named Straith, the famous Straith letter, does it on State Department letterhead, sends it to him, messes with George Adamski, who he's friends with, never tells him, and then writes a book about Adamski in which the Straith letter is a whole chapter, the mysterious Straith letter. Who sent it? And then another... Well, if you run out of the material, you know, create some. And then another lady um, had let him publish her contactee experience, but without copyright, because she believed copyright was against natural law. And so she saw his version come out, said, oh, you changed it. You added things. I don't like that. I'm going to do my own new version. And when she threatens to do that, he fakes a men in black encounter and sends her threatening letters from the men in black through the better book league saying, um, we've heard you're going to publish this dangerous contactee lore. Better watch out. The men in black will get you, (laughs) which is maybe taking it from joke to 
threat. Harassment. <laughs> Harassment. Um, anyway, in 1968, he writes to former saucer investigator John Sherwood saying, strictly off the record, unusual interest and fixation upon UFOs represents, in my opinion, a definite symptom of neurosis. I cannot bear for very long most of the people in the fans of saucerdom, mainly because most of them talk all the time about saucers and make you listen. <laughs> <laughs> Fair cop there. Yeah. yeah. So not wrong. You got to say, ultimately, uh, I think he is in the spirit of Charles Fort, a joker, a showman, an entertainer. You could go a little uh, philosophical and say he's interested in contactees and channels because he's interested in the human experience of the alien. But you could also say that's what's sold. Right. It's one of his gigs in his sort of hard scrabble existence. Right. His last word on the topic is in 1981. This has a Fortean feel to me. He says he has a vision. In this vision, an incomprehensible being of enormous size and power, perhaps larger than the globe itself, dangled huge cables from the sky. Like some gargantuan giant wielding enormous fish bowls, this force cast bait consisting of disc-shaped objects, not unlike modern UFOs. And that is, of course, Charles Fort's, I think we're fished for, just uh, big and pretty and uh, at a slightly higher word count. And that's that's Gray Barker, right? In a nutshell, he's I mean, there's a lot wrong with him just in terms of his behavior is probably not technically defensible. He definitely, you know, finds forty four hundred credulous dupes and milks them for a living. I'm sure that his film business also does not stand up to ethical scrutiny. But at the end of the day. He invented the modern version of the men in black. He popularized the Philadelphia experiment. He is the linchpin of saucer lore and the UFO mythology, not just his own writings, but the stuff that he published through Saucerian Press, you know, laid the groundwork. Without Gray Barker, there could have been no X-Files, I guess is what I'm saying. Right. And that would be bad. And so if you have him or an analog of him show up in your game, obviously in a game set in the present day it would have to be someone like him but younger mm. you have that interesting dynamic where the investigators know that a certain percentage of what he's got is real research a certain other percentage is sham and you don't know which is which so you know in his archive he could be pointing you to something or the clues that you're picking up the threatening letter that you get could be just Barker or a Barker-like fictional character messing with you. And the question is, if you are creating the Men in Black as a tulpa, deliberately or undeliberately, and you do a fake Men in Black threat, do you summon real Men in Black? Are you strengthening those tulpas? What's going on with you? His relationship with John Keel, I would love to read more about it somewhere. Maybe Keel has a diary somewhere that'll eventually get published, but that seems... Uh, that Keel influenced Barker a lot, and Barker definitely influenced Keel. That they had a lot of, you know, Beatles and Beach Boys back and forth going on with them. Well, once we've brought a, a classic musical cross fertilization uh, metaphor, it's time to end this podcast, but only for this week, because next week we'll be back with more of the similar. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Aspergown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Cushion this podcast from wall hitting alongside such supportive backers as... Robert Dean. Chris Lydon. Patrick Joint. Yaj from Edinburgh. And Daniel Markwig. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our new classic design, Unicorn with a Better Armor class. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>